0: Ah, a Bible. Good morning. Um, Thank you for being here this morning. It's always an honor to uh, get to stand up here and and to share with you. And uh, when you show up, it's even more of an honor. When you're not here, it's not as much an honor. Um, Let me put this down so I don't trip and meet the people on the front row. Um, we are going through, if you're new to the class, um, and we, we always have a few people who are new, who are visitors or whatever. We had a, a very, I had a very nice uh, lady come up to me this morning and say, I want to start coming, but I don't want to leave my other class, and so I I'm going to kind of hopscotch back and forth, and we welcome you in any way, shape, form, or fashion, but she said, because of this, I missed last week's lesson, and I'd like an extra one, and we had run out, and we didn't bring extra, so we will bring extra next week. If you need to this week's lesson, raise your hand now, Um, uh, and actually, back in the back, we have lessons for the last year and a half or two years of this class, because the class started in Genesis, and we have been working our way through and are in 1 Corinthians right now. We've got a lot to cover this morning and very limited time to do it. So, um, without further ado, let's move through it. This morning, we're looking at some particular problems and questions among the Corinthian church. This is an interesting letter. The letter, 1 Corinthians, was not written just as a, um, a general sermon, it was not written as a general letter to be passed around. You will find, for example, some of Paul's other letters are letters that were written for a number of churches to share. This letter, though, is particular to the Corinthian church because there, it was a church where Paul had spent a lot of time. Paul was there for 18 months when he started the church. And not only had Paul spent a lot of time there, but there had been a lot of traffic back and forth between the Corinthian church and Paul. People going back and forth. Uh, letters going back and forth. And so Paul was very up-to-date with what was going on with the church. There were some very special problems within the church. And Paul wrote this letter to address a lot of those problems. Now, the wonderful thing about it for us is, first of all, it gives us a glimpse into what was going on at that church, which uh, I find fascinating both as a Christian and as someone who spends too much time watching the History Channel. Because it it unfolds for us some history of what was going on in some people's lives. A second reason, though, it's very uh, useful for us to know it's, it's a letter written to a specific church is because we have the daunting task, by the blessing of God's Spirit, but we have the daunting task of trying to read it and understand why Paul said the things he said so that we can properly apply them in our lives today. This is a letter where if you take some of the verses out of context and out of the context of when and how Paul wrote them, you can go wildly off the reservation of what on earth Paul is talking about. And I think as we go through some of these particular problems and look at them, we'll not only see where maybe that's happened with people we know, but I'll try to identify historically how some of these verses have been taken and and steered even the church at large in the wrong direction perhaps at times. So let's look at these particular problems and questions. And the reason I say problems and questions is because it's apparent as we read the letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul and asked Paul certain questions. And so Paul was trying to address, if not the specific questions, at least the subject areas that the Corinthian church had. Ah, one last point before I move on. As you look at these problems, part of me wants to know why Paul even addressed the Corinthian church as a church. Because there's a bunch of us who'd say, oh, look, if the church is wrong in this, you know, they were messing up with the Lord's Supper. They're messing up with worship and speaking in tongues. They're messing up with lawsuits. They're messing up with with, uh, uh, sexual immorality. They're messing up with so many different things that we just write them off and say, those are the pagans down the street. And yet Paul doesn't do that because these are people who have the Spirit of God. These are Christian brothers and sisters by and large that are just walking in a lot of error and need correction. And this was brought to my attention by a friend of... I see the riddles out there. A friend of the riddles and a friend of mine was a preacher named Don Finto. It was very impressionable to me when I was a young boy. And Don memorized this book of 1 Corinthians because he wanted to to really hone in and chew over and over on these different things and try to figure out how to apply them. Phenomenal preacher, and uh, uh, this is a great book. So we're looking at problems that in and of themselves as we look at today, you may sit back and say, well, that's not really a problem in our church. That's not really a problem we have. But if we're to tie a theme together with these problems that I'm going to really thrust at you at the end, It's that Paul wants our faith to be genuine. And that's what all the bottom line is here to me. Christianity should never be a social club. Christianity should never be something that's just inherited so we go to church. Christianity should never be something that we do to keep peace in the family. Christianity never should be something we do to keep our conscience from bothering us when we do everything else during the week. And one way that we can check, just as surely as a thermometer will check to see if someone's got a fever, one way we can check to see how genuine our Christianity is, is to see how the ethics of Jesus Christ crucified permeates what we do. Both in the ways we relate at church and in the things we do at home away from church. Because that'll tell you how hot your fever's running. Or how cold. Okay? So with that as a background, let's look through these points. Um, Background number one. Paul is well apprised of the situation. There are schisms within the church. Not just divisions, but very clearly part of the church is anti-Paul. There is a strong element in this church that's teaching against Paul. Keep that in mind as we go through it. So in chapter 4... Paul has just finished talking about the wisdom of God as we discussed last week and the schisms within the church as we discussed last week. And Paul says, you are like my children and I am like your father. And I'm coming to you again. I'm sending you this letter. I'm going to send you Timothy. But beyond that, I'm going to come to you again myself. And you got some choices. Those of you who are dividing the church and preaching against me and everything, get yourself in line. Because when I come to you as a father, we can have a delightful family reunion or I can come with a whip. And we'll just see who's really got enough power to stand up in front of me. Now Paul's writing this from Ephesus where, Paul, where the Holy Spirit's working through Paul so much as we read about in Acts that people were taking Paul's handkerchiefs or, 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 or you know, apron from his tent making and the, the kerchief he'd tie around his neck. And even the articles of clothing of Paul are healing people. The Spirit of God is coursing powerfully through Paul. And Paul has no hesitation at saying, I'm coming. And those of you who are slandering and saying I'm nothing and that my gospel is worthless and foolish, you either get in line and we'll have a good family reunion or you get ready and we'll hook them up and see who, who's, who's last man standing. Um, Paul's, Paul's writing in the Corinthian letter is very blunt. I mean, he's very firm. He is not... Uh, uh, someone who's just mealy-mouthing the gospel for fear he offends someone. He's got no qualms at all at laying it out exactly as he sees it. And so Paul says it. Now, chapter 5 is where we'll start with a specific problem. There was an immorality that was being allowed at the church of Corinth that left Paul aghast. The immorality itself was highly, highly detestable. But Paul launches into not just the detestability of the immorality, but that the church would allow it. Here's the problem. It's incest. Paul writes in Galatia, I mean 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's Wife, And that seems a little inarticulate to us, but it's because Paul is echoing the command in Leviticus that says that this is not to be allowed. It's a stepmother situation. It's a man who has his father's wife. Father may be dead at this point. We don't know. The language has... The way it's written in the Greek, it's a polite way of saying that they're living together in some type of a sexual relationship. And this is something that was against pagan law. I mean, the Roman law did not sanction or unction incest. And please understand, Roman law, Greek society, was very, very, very open sexually as compared to Judeo-Christian ethics. But even in this broad, sinful openness of Roman law, what was happening in the Corinthian church was wrong. Now, we don't know a lot more detail behind this. The earliest uh, extra commentary that we can find on it was by a a fellow named John Chrysostom, who was an early Christian writer. John Chrysostom is from 347 to 407 A.D., and he actually wrote a verse-by-verse exposition on the Corinthian letters, along with some other sermons. And John Chrysostom tells us there was another sin committed there, namely a person who had slept with his stepmother, not only escaped rebuke, but even became a leader of the people. Because the early church tradition was, it's one thing for this to be happening, and the guy slips in the back door and slips back out, and nobody knows it. But this is a church that not only was fully aware of it, but acknowledged this fella as a leader in the church. I assure you, when Ron and the committee go to find our next pastor, they're not going to find some guy living in incest and make him the pastor. That's probably like one of the top criteria they'll X off. But that doesn't mean this is inapplicable to to us today, or that we only preach this to Ron. Okay, This is still applicable... Because the church's attitude was one of tolerance. And here's what Paul has to respond to. Paul directs his response not only to the man himself, but to the church as well. Because the church should not be countenancing this. The church should not be admiring this. The church should not be allowing this. And you get the impression from the letter that the church was taking the freedom they had in Christ and exalting in the fact that they could be so free that they could let this man parade himself around as something significant within the church when he's living in open, obvious, detestable sin. And so Paul directs it and says, The man, hand him over to Satan. I've already done it, Paul says. Church, do it. This man is not to be a part of your fellowship. You hand him over to Satan in hopes you save his soul. Because maybe once the guy is ostracized from the community of believers, something may awaken within him. Now Paul doesn't say anything about the woman. Which leads most scholars to believe that the woman wasn't a Christian. It was just the man who was the Christian, or claiming to be one anyway. So Paul doesn't have any authority over the woman, and the woman's not his issue. Paul's issue is, within the church, this is going on, and this man's being held out as an example when this man should not be. And we need to cut it off, and we need to stop it. And hand the man over to Satan. Let the man find the fruit of his lifestyle. If the man doesn't want to follow God, see, it's the genuineness. Let's find out if the man's a Christian. If he's a Christian, when the fellowship's withdrawn from him, he's going to miss it and want it, and he'll he'll focus on his life and get himself back right. If the fellowship's not meaning anything to him, he's just there like yeast polluting the whole dough. And Paul says just as much as yeast gets in and works throughout the whole bread, that's the effect this has on, on you as a church, and you need to get it out. So stop the association. Paul says, this is something you can do. We need to make sure. Now, now we've got to be real careful here. See, sometimes churches have taken this passage of Scripture and used it to disfellowship anybody or any congregation that doesn't follow things exactly the way that church believes it should be done. I went to school uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And in Nashville, Tennessee, there seemed to me to be hundreds of churches And there is a couple of places where there are churches of the same denomination on the same block. I was driving through, um, oh, I forgot the name of the town, Um, Oakwood, Oakwood. And my grandfather on my mom's side grew up in Oakwood. And hadn't lived there. Uh, well, I hadn't lived for, for over a decade now, but hadn't lived in Oakwood uh, since probably he was 20 or so, even younger. He moved to Abilene, where he met my grandmother at Abilene Christian. And, uh, uh, but I thought, you know, this is where my granddad's from. I've got a little extra time. I was going up to, I had to be in Palestine at court, and, and I had a little extra time, so I thought I would stop uh, uh, and visit. And it was, uh, um, well, it was either a Sunday or a Wednesday, so I was either going up or coming back after. I guess I was coming back from court on a Wednesday. So I went to a Wednesday night service. And this is a town that is not any bigger than a minute. And it takes about 60 seconds to drive through it. So I figured I was pretty good. Well, they have two churches of this denomination in this town. And I'm telling you, our class is bigger than the town, okay? And so I didn't know which one to go to. I knew which church my grandfather had grown up in, so I went to one and said, uh, uh, yeah, there were about 25 people there, and asked, and it turns out that that uh, uh, my grandfather may have gone to the other one, or his family went to the other one. And I said, well, what's the difference? And they said, well, we're right and they're wrong. <laughs> And I said, on what? And I think it was something like whether or not you could use a pitch pipe to pitch the singing that may have caused the great divide, I'm not sure. But it was something almost as silly. And, and these are the types of scriptures that, that churches will often use. Well, they're living in blatant sin. They have a pitch pipe. Um, We had a, we gave a roast one time uh, uh, and needed a church to do it, and the church that we gave it at, the church building, had the fellowship hall and the kitchen built apart from the church proper with the auditorium. And I asked why, because it didn't make sense to me. They said, because there's nothing in the Bible that says you're allowed to have a kitchen in a church building. And so this was the only way we could build it without splitting the church. I said, what? <laughs> you know? But these types of passages, please understand there's a difference between withdrawing fellowship from a group of people because they may not see something in good faith eye to eye the way you do, and withdrawing fellowship from someone who's living in blatant incest, sexual immorality as a leader within the church. Okay? Lawsuit problems. I get this one cuz I'm a lawyer. I'm not just a lawyer. of my work is representing, as I like to say, the widows and the orphans who've been downtrodden by the the maniacal Goliaths in the world. But, aside from what we say, let's look at this and try to understand what Paul is writing about here. Um, Lawsuit problems. The problem, church disputes are being brought before pagan courts. If Dorothy and Castel have a dispute, over who gets to sit by the aisle. Now, let's make it more significant. Over who's got the right to this, that, or the other. What was happening in Corinth is the church members were taking this dispute to a civil court. Now, Paul says that's wrong. Church disputes are not to be resolved before pagan courts. Y'all are family. We are all family. If I've got something against Ray, I don't need to go to a pagan court. I need to go to Ray. And if Ray and I can't sort it out, we need to find someone in here to help us do it. But we don't take our family matters and go before pagans and ask pagans to referee our internal family fights. When in the same breath we tell the pagan, we're a church of love. Okay? Genuine Christianity doesn't do that. So Paul says, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it to the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Paul says no. Now, you've got to remember, under Roman law at the time, Jewish disputes could be settled by the Jewish system. And Christianity was viewed as a Jewish cult at the time. So, so the, the, the Roman law allowed the Christians and the Jews to, to arbitrate their own disputes. In fact, even when Paul was hauled in front of the Corinthian uh, 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 Gallio, who was the, the pro-council there in Corinth, when Paul was forming the church, and there for 18 months, the Jews dragged Paul in front of the ungodly to try and get the ungodly to judge Paul. And Gallio said, hey, this is Jewish law. You got your own ways of figuring it out. Get out of here. You know, if he starts messing up with our peace, he starts assaulting or doing something like that, then that's a different matter. But right now, this is just your Jewish fuss about your Jewish faith. Y'all go deal with it in your own courts or your own selves. And, and uh, the Roman law allowed that. The Roman courts also were strongly favorite, fav- strongly Strongly favored those who were wealthy or had status. I'll tell you, one of the reasons I love our country is because I see face-to-face that we have a country designed around a court system that's not supposed to play favorites. We have a country that was formed, by and large, with a Christian mentality. And our forefathers set it up taking away this idea that there should be a pagan court system where the rich people or where the people with status get favored treatment. And the whole reason, if you're in criminal trouble or civil trouble, the whole reason we get a jury of our peers is because our forefathers in this country thought it important to let our neighbors decide our disputes. And that's not very different than what Paul was teaching the Corinthian church it ought to be doing. It's just saying, let the church resolve the disputes within the church. Don't go to the pagans to do it. Um, You got to know the people that were taking the cases to the pagan courts were the ones who had the favoritism, who thought it was their way to win. And uh, Paul says, no, let the church handle it. He says the church is going to be involved at the end in judging the world and judging the angels. Can't you figure if you're going to be responsible for that, you ought to be able to judge amongst yourselves about what's going on and what's right? Now, where does this get murky with us today? Um, uh, I I don't think Paul's talking in ways that affect uh, 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 much of the claims that we need to make. If you get wronged in a situation where the wrong has been committed by someone outside of our church body, uh, I personally don't have any problem with you assessing. And by outside of our church body, I don't mean uh, they go to Second Baptist instead of here. I mean, if we've got a Christian problem, we need to deal with it within the church. But if you've got a problem with an insurance company, I've yet to find one that's never that's not polite. Um, you've got a problem with, with, you know, there are other institutions that frequently the only way you'll get justice, they won't submit themselves to our church for judgment. And fortunately in America, we have a court system where we can go resolve those matters. You don't have to go do it personally. Um, so, so this is not, you know, we, we've got to understand what Paul's teaching here and then try to understand it within the framework of this. I will tell you this, if, uh, uh Gary comes to me and says, I want to sue Dorothy because Dorothy uh, uh, has moved her fence three feet over into my yard And, and it really ticks me off and I want my three feet back. My response would be, we need to sit down as a church and handle this. I won't handle that kind of a lawsuit for him because we're not going to be involved in taking church people and going down to a pagan court system and leaving a witness to the world that we can't get along over something like that and yet we want the world to believe us when we say God is love, Jesus is love, forgive your neighbor. And so Paul's pretty blunt in how Paul deals with it because there is an effect on the watching world with what we do. Next, chapter 6, starting with verse 12, going to the end of the chapter, Paul deals with prostitution and sexual immorality. Now, this is very different for us in some ways today. We live in a culture that, just like in our court system, our culture, if not... I I won't say we live in a Christian country because I don't believe we do at this point, but I do believe historically, and I don't think anybody would argue, that the underpinnings of our country and of Western civilization itself are Judaic Christian underpinnings. We are... Western civilization is a result of what Renaissance came out of the Middle Ages. But the Middle Ages themselves were a churched age, where actually the Catholic Church had much more authority than most governments. And with the the Renaissance and with the Reformation movement. Governments began to take the authority that the church had. And governments grew in authority while the church declined. But the governments growing still based much of the law and much of what they had on Judaic Christian beliefs. So we have an idea that unless you're in Las Vegas or a few other places, prostitution is illegal. And certainly, as Christians, we would see it, even in Las Vegas, as sinful and wrong. That was not the mentality in the early church. That's not fair to say. Let me say it more accurately. For Jews, that was understood at the time of the church forming. But the Greeks who came into the church, that was a foreign concept to them. In the Greek mentality... And you got a lot of Greeks coming into the church. It's not just Jews. I put a quotation up here. Um, Yeah, porneo is the Greek word that's being used by Paul here. It's prostitution or also more than that, just sexual immorality. We get the word porno from it um, or pornography, which is uh, viewing uh, uh, the prostitution or sexual immorality. Um, Porneo is the problem. But let's look at this. I pulled this from Demosthenes was a Greek orator from 320 BC. and, And a lot of scholars will go back and look at Demosthenes' orations. He was one of the best orators Greece ever produced. Go back and look at them because they provide real glimpses into the life of the time. Look at what Demosthenes said. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of the body but wives to bear us legitimate children. That's the mentality. In Corinth, they have a temple with prostitutes where part of the religious service is the men going and paying the prostitutes for the sexual immorality. And that makes the prostitutes money. They give the cut to the temple. And it's all written off as a holy thing. That's the mentality not just among the adults. That's the mentality that's being taught to the kids growing up. And so this has been their mentality all of their life. And all of a sudden now, they get taught that God is one. And they get taught that Jesus Christ is His Son. And that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And bore the price of their sins. And they envelop and and embrace that. But meanwhile, you know, this... I mean, what's the problem with prostitution? You know, what's the problem with, you know, just I'm going to keep my wife happy and she'll bear legitimate offspring and they'll inherit. This is just something to keep me busy and happy. Paul says, no, absolutely not. And Paul makes some points that are very strong. Paul says, first of all, The Corinthians are fond of saying, quote, everything is permissible for me. He says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but Paul is not going to be mastered by anything. And Paul says this in the context of this discussion because there is an effect of sexual immorality on the people involved. Now, ultimately before God, is all sin wrong? Yes. Does all sin Cause separation from God, yes. Is one sin any worse than another sin? Not in the sense of what it takes to merit God's love. The smallest sin is abhorrent before God. But the Bible does teach that there is a clear difference in effect between various kinds of sin. Some sin affects us more than other sin does. And we're fools who are playing a rationalizing game, if we tell ourselves, well, I may be involved in sexual immorality, but really, in the eyes of God, that's no different than telling a lie. And so, it's just one of these things I have a problem with. Paul says no. Paul says, in fact, sexual immorality frequently is your master." instead of you being, God being your master. Sexual immorality has an effect on you because he says, when you unite with someone physically, there is a uniting that's taking place on a non-physical level. Whether you recognize it or not. And that's not what we're made for. And that's not right. And so Paul uses the word flee. Flee from immorality. He doesn't say, stand in front and stand strong. He says, turn around and run. If you've got immorality in front of you, don't think, well, there's immorality, but I'm just going to walk right by it and look it dead in the eye and say, no, no, no. He says, you got immorality? You see immorality there in front of you? Turn around and find another way to go. Because it becomes the master. And it affects who you are. And it affects how you act. And it affects how you feel. And it affects how you relate. And if you don't believe it, you're fooling yourself. Honor God. Seek to unite yourself with God. Your body's the holy temple of God. God's Holy Spirit lives in you. Should the temple of God unite with a prostitute? Absolutely not. Next, these are to me like little snapshots. You know, Paul's like going a slide here and a slide here and a slide here. He's just—I can just kind of see him. Okay, I, you know, I got to get this letter off to the Corinthian church. We got to fix this stuff. Okay, I'm going to deal with—I'm uh, going to deal with that prostitution thing. Uh, and then I can eat lunch. He's, okay, so he goes—he dealt with—he ate lunch, came back, said, "Whoa, I'm feeling better. I think we can do marriage now." And it's like changes subjects. In fact, some scholars believe that Paul wrote a multiple of letters to the Corinthians that have been combined to make 1st and 2nd Corinthians. That's called the partitive theory of Corinthians and it's one of the reasons why is because there are some very clear changes uh, in direction in Paul's talk as he goes through and sometimes people have trouble putting together a constant theme that makes a, a flow sense and so they say what must have happened is Paul wrote seven, eight, two, three, depending on who you're talking to, different letters to the Corinthians and because the Corinthians wanted these letters to go around to the churches and the other people wanted copies, instead of trying to make six different scrolls they would just take the meat out of each one and put it all together and that became the Corinthian letters. And then our title was added on a couple of years later or a couple hundred years later of 1 Corinthians. Okay? So, so this is actually a set of Paul's writings. Um, I don't know it doesn't bother me because God's hands in it either way either way it's the inerrant Word of God to me but I don't have any problem seeing Paul taking a break and then coming back to write this part or or dictate this part the next day or the next week or something like that but here's a new shift now Paul wants to talk about marriage in chapter 7 there are a number of problems the Corinthians are having with this marriage stuff they're all messed up sexually um, uh, the, the, the sexuality... First of all, Corinthia, Corinth itself was such a sexually amoral sailor's town. But even within the framework of that, uh, uh, the, the church is they try to grapple with people from that Greek background, with people from the Jewish background, and then this is a brand new church. It, it, this is not a church where the families were Christians to start with. Castel, were you a Christian when you got married? Was your wife a Christian when you got married? Okay, you see, they got married, they were both Christians. Very different if you're in a marriage and neither one of you are Christians. You're both pagans and in the middle of the marriage one of you decides, hey, I think I'm coming to faith in Jesus Christ and you give your life to Christ. Then all of a sudden you got a new ball of wax here. In the Corinthian church, that wasn't the... Exception that was the norm because there weren't Christians there before Paul started the church. So unless an entire family came of faith, and that did happen some, we read about households uh, 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 for the fellow who was head of the synagogue, his household came to faith. But unless the household comes to faith, typically it'd be a person. And so what do we do within marriage? Now that we're Christians and we're one with Christ... Should we remain celibate in the marriage itself and remove sexuality from marriage? Should we stay single if we're we're not married? Or is it better to, to, to get married? What should we do? They didn't know. And what about these mixed faith marriages? Now that one of us has become a Christian, should we leave and form a pure household? What should we do there? So Paul teaches on these things in chapter 7. First, celibacy within marriage. Chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, and I believe uh, along with a number of scholars that Paul's quoting from a Corinthian letter here, for the matters you wrote about, quote, It is good for a man not to marry. There's an alternate uh, translation. You could also translate that. uh, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And it's alternate because in Paul's teaching, you don't have sexual relations unless you're in a marriage. But the Corinthians were saying that it's good, and I'm sure some of them thought they were following Paul because Paul was single. So it's good not to marry. Or if you're in a marriage, it's good to act as if you're single and stay celibate. And Paul says, let me address this. Now, before I go any further, this is one of the passages that has been used by a, a, a number of churches. The, the, the Catholic Church at large has seen in this passage for a long time. I don't know where they are on this today, but historically has seen in this passage their reason for priests not getting married, one of the passages that's used to support that, because it's a higher calling. It's not the only passage, but it's one of the passages that have been used that way. And I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about here. Because I think what Paul's doing, first of all, is he's quoting their letter. And then where Paul takes it is a little bit of a different direction. Paul says, while yes, it's good for a man not to marry, have sexual relations, you need to realize that everybody should have their own spouse because of sexual immorality. The sexual drive is so strong with most people that if they don't have a spouse, they're going to be living in fornication and sin. O. And Paul says because of porneo, sexual immorality, it's better for you to go ahead and be married. Don't think that it's a higher calling to be celibate because it is a calling. And within marriage itself, you have a duty in that marriage to your spouse to be available on an intimate level. Paul says it's, it's not right within the marriage itself once you are married, or if you, you already were married, it's not right to say, I'm going to pledge myself now to celibacy out of love for the Lord. Because to do that is, is, is not fair to your spouse, because your body, once you're married, doesn't belong just to you. It belongs also to your spouse, and vice versa. Which also means that... that you know Now, so Paul says... Don't deprive your spouse of sexual intimacy unless, and he says, here's the okay. Four things. Number one, mutual consent. Both of you agree. And then, number two, very important, it's got to be just for a certain time. And it's to devote yourself to prayer. But Paul says, then come together again quickly, lest Satan be tempting. Because the temptation is too strong. So, so within the framework of the questions of the church about celibacy and marriage. Now, what does this mean for us today? Um, um, well, it means what it says. I think Paul would say the same thing. But sometimes this has been used and misused by people in homes. And so we need to be careful not to take what Paul says and take it beyond for example, this does not mean that a wife's or a husband's every obligation is to be there 24-7, day and night available, where the other spouse gets to abuse the sexual relationship. There truly is to be, it's a mutual thing. You know, the, the wife, you know, the, for the husband to say to the wife, you have no choice, we must be intimate because your body is mine should free up legally, at least in my mind, the wife to say, well, that's fine, but your body's mine, go in the backyard. <laughs> see, there, there is a mutuality there, so you, you've got to be careful. But I think what Paul's driving at here is, is driving home the point that we're to grow together in love and we're to see this as, as a purpose that we're working towards. And, and the idea is not to move away from sexual intimacy. The idea is to find sexual intimacy in the Lord. Does that make sense? We've got to be real careful not to take these passages and start driving them home to push personal agendas until we first understand Paul's agenda, which is God's agenda. All right? Now, so Paul says on this subject, should we stay single? Should we get married? What do we do about that? Paul says, well, to the unmarried and to the widows, here's what I have to say. And Paul will also talk about virgins, which was a different category. Virgins were people that were engaged, but not yet consummating the marriage. That's like what Mary was when Joseph took Mary to Bethlehem. It's a special Jewish status of an engaged period. So betrothed could be an appropriate word. To the unmarried, to the widows, to the betrothed. He says it's good to stay unmarried, but it's much better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, while being single is fine. If it's something that's not compatible with your makeup in such a way that that you are are consumed, burned up, consumed with with, uh, sexual desire. He says it's much better. That's, That's an indication you belong in the married group, most likely. And so get to work on that. If you're married, Paul says, stay married. Paul says, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are, in the sense if you're single or you're betrothed. What was that present crisis? I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. But if there's a crisis going on in your life, or a crisis going on in our community, which which seems to dictate by the Spirit of God that you're better off single right now than married, then you pay attention to it. Paul's not giving hard and fast rules on this. Paul's trying to get people in sync with God's spirit and understanding. Um, And I've got to be careful because Paul does give some hard and fast rules. Okay, But understand the flow. If that's for me, I'm busy. Um, Next, Paul's teaching on mixed faith marriages. Paul says if the unbeliever's willing to live in the union, then don't divorce them. You can't use your newfound faith as an excuse to get rid of your old found partner. Okay, Paul says, uh, remember, your faith that you bring into your marriage has an effect on your old found partner, it has an effect on your children, and so if you're if the unbeliever is willing to live in a marital union, then uh, you need to live with them. Okay, next chapter, chapter eight, food sacrifice to idols. Now, Becky and I, Friday, became the proud owners of 36 five day old Cornish hen chicks. I'm gonna feed them, fatten them, and slaughter them. <laughs> it's gonna be pachugas gratinadas, ninfa style, at the Lanier household. In fact, I was talking at the gong show with Linda, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, and some other ladies at that table. And I said, so how many of y'all have uh, ever butchered chickens? (laughs) Linda said, not me, city girl. (laughs) Someone else said, I did when I was a kid. And I said, you know, this would make a wonderful Sunday school social. We'd need to get more than our 36, but it'd just be this Friday night. Bring your knife. We're going to set the grill, and it's going to be pick your own. I want that one. Whack. All right? Now, I've been talking to a friend of mine who's a lawyer in Baltimore, Maryland, named Shep Hoffman. Shep is Jewish, and I love Shep to death. Bless his heart, he gets stuck on an airplane frequently with us when the whole three-hour flight's involved in Christian religious discussions. But uh, he's, he's just a wonderful dear friend. He told me he would join our Christian Trial Lawyers Association if I would make it ecumenical. I said, well, then it's not really a Christian Trial Lawyers Association. <laughs> kind of every man's trial lawyers association. But... Uh, 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 so. Sh- <laughs> I said, how about if I form a Jewish trial lawyers association? No. Um, So Shep and I were talking about this, and Shep said to me, Mark, when you get ready to butcher your chickens, get a rabbi over to do it. He said, get your class to show up. Let them learn the kosher method of And I said, well, I guess if I've got chickens or cows, that would work. But what could he do with my pig? And he said, <laughs> <clears throat> so anyway, um, I don't know how we're going to do it. But at some point in time, we're going to get these little puppies, not puppies. We're going to get these little chickies <laughs> slaughtered. Okay, we'd have hot dogs. Anyway, the, uh, <laughs> um, they were puppies. Back in the Greek time, if you were, it weren't just the Jewish priests that knew how to slaughter the animals. If you were a pagan, it was the pagan priests at the Greek temples that could slaughter the animals. They'd take their share and give you the rest. And so if you went to the meat market to get meat, one of the concerns that you had was, unless you could find the K with a circle around it to tell you it was kosher, one of the concerns you would have is maybe this meat was sacrificed to an idol before it was slaughtered. So there was a real issue. I mean, aren't you paying homage to the idol if you eat the meat? Paul says, look, eat it or not eat it? Let me answer it. There is a conscience issue here. If you're, you know, I've grown up from this tall on and remember going with mom to the the slaughter." temple and getting the meat and bringing it back from the chickens, and when you eat that meat, you're in your mind associating the fact that, you you know, this meal's been blessed by some pagan idol that you now know. He says, don't mess with your conscience. If your conscience says this is wrong, don't do it. But as a practical matter, Paul says, the idol is nothing. And there wasn't Aphrodite blessing the meat to you or the huntress Diana. You know, that didn't happen. So, you want to go to the meat market, you want to buy the meat, you want to take the meat home, you want to cook the meat, that's fine. However, if you're around someone whose conscience is bothered, it's really not useful for you to feed them meat that's going to mess with their mind and hurt their heart because that's not what you're about either. And so don't do that. He says, what difference does it make? What's a meal anyway? You know, do right. Paul's teaching, there's no truth to idols. Eat without worry, but be careful with weak consciences. Next point, ministry and money. We'll go through this quickly. The problem, Paul worked and preached both, and they thought he must be a pretty shoddy preacher because he was having to work for a living and couldn't find anybody to support him. Paul says, no, I do that so you can't ever blame me for what I'm saying for money. When I got out of uh, uh, school with my Bible degree, I had a chance to preach at a church and I had a chance to go to law school. I went to visit my preacher. I said, Ken, what should I do? I can go preach at this church or I can go to law school. He said, and I was growing up in the Church of Christ and he was a Church of Christ preacher. He said, Lanier, do you think you have to be baptized to go to heaven? I said, no. He said, Lanier, do you think instrumental music is wrong in worship? I said, no. He said, well, you got two choices. He says, you can preach in a church of Christ and lie, or you can find a job every six months when they fire you because they figure out what you believe. And I said, that's bad, isn't it? He says, yeah. He says, you either got to turn Baptist or (laughs) go to law school He said, if you go to law school and you tithe your income, nine out of ten churches will let you stand up and preach anything you want in Sunday school. (laughs) That's not how I got here, I hope. (laughs) But that was the advice. So I went to law school. And, And the nice thing is he says, if you do that, you can preach because you want to and never because you have to. Because a lot of preachers, and this is something that that y'all are going to have to find on the committee. A lot of preachers hit their mid-40s. And in their mid-40s, they're thinking, oh, I wish I was doing something else. You don't ever, I mean, DeMond, bless his heart, he's 69 years old and wakes up and comes in and preaches every Sunday. I I just admire the dog out of that man. Because he's preaching because God's put the message on his heart. He's not preaching because he needs the money. He's not preaching because he doesn't have another job he can go to. He's preaching because God's put the message on his heart. And that's what you need. And so Paul says, you know, it's just it's it's okay if the ministry is your job, but it's also okay if it's not. The point is, find your ministry. You see, because all of us are ministers. I stand up here and I teach this class. But when I'm through, I don't take this coat off and then go home and become a pagan for the rest of the week. I don't stand up here and talk nice, and then when I go to work tomorrow, and Dr. Bob would be one of the first ones to rat on me if I did. I hope I don't speak any differently tomorrow at work than I speak up here today. Philip will tell you what my attitude is. Philip, bless his heart, there was a time Philip did something um, um, that, uh, can I tell this story? There was a time Philip did something very wrong, and Philip was not coming to the Sunday school class and was not helping us. And, and Philip made a discretion call that was just flat wrong. And he made it with, I and mean, Philip's wonderful. I would have Philip work for me every day of my life if he would. Okay? But this time, he really blew it. And I called him into my office, and I had a couple other people there. And I sat him down, and I said, I know you don't, you're not a Christian. And you don't have to be a Christian to work for me. But I want to tell you something. I ought to fire you right now. And the reason I'm not firing you is because of the mercy that God showed me in Jesus Christ. And the only way you're going to keep your job is if you listen long enough to understand what's happened to me in my life. And the mercy I've gotten from God. Because that's the mercy you're getting right now. <laughs> and now Philip's at a place in his life where he understands that mercy. That's... We're all ministering. At least we're supposed to be. All right, points for home. This is a little different than the handout because I refined it after I did the lesson. I want us to all have genuine Christian faith. I want us to all have genuine Christian faith. Faith that permeates and oozes out every pore. I want the words that I have every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday To be seasoned with grace. I want my disposition to be one of love. I want people to see in me Jesus Christ. I have a lot of sins and a lot of areas where I really need to work to make that happen. But I want to do that work. And I want to make it happen. So I want my faith to be genuine and I want it to be seen at my home. I want Becky to see it. I don't want Becky to come to class and think what a hypocrite I have for a husband. He stands up there and says all these wonderful things and then he comes home and he's 180 degrees different. I don't want Becky to say he's so nice to people when he sees them in the aisle at church and when he slaps them on the back. But when he comes home he's such a beast and a bear. I want my faith to be genuine at home. I want I want my faith to be something that lifts up my wife and my children. I want my children to know that their father loved the Lord and was enough loved by the Lord that it made a difference in who he was at home. And I don't want it just at home. I want to be genuine at church. And by genuine, I don't want to just come in and say, Hi to Alphonse, just because it's an obligation to say hi to people. And I saw him. I want to be someone who cares. I want to care about each one of you. I want to work on these lessons not because I have all this spare time during the week and I just have nothing to do with it, with a wife and five kids and a full-time job and offices in New York and Houston and Longview. 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 I don't even know where my offices are. But I want to work on these lessons because I want to stand up here and try and give you something. Because God has changed my life. God has changed who I am. And if I have any ability to share any of that with you, I want to share it with you because I love you and I care about you and because it's so incredible. I want genuine faith, not just... At home, and I want genuine faith not just at church, but I want genuine faith in my ministry. And what that means is in what I do with not just you, but with every person I meet. We'll go out and eat lunch after this is over, and there's going to be a lady or a man who waits on our table. And the way I treat her makes a difference in or him, makes a difference in their life. And I want genuine faith. I want God to reach out through even something as meaningless as a smile and a thank you in addition to a tip. The hardest place for me to have ministry is pulling out of the parking garage lot here. Because I just really wonder if the first will be last and the last will be first when it comes to leaving. But I'm trying. Would you pray with me? (laughs) Lord, thank you for the joy we have in Jesus. The joy that can give us laughter. The joy that can give us peace. It is my prayer that you will make our Christian faith genuine. That we will see the cross of Jesus Christ affecting the way we talk, affecting the way we pray, affecting the way we live, affecting the way we love, affecting the way we parent, we spouse, affecting the way we work. Lord, we all come with so many different wounds that make it so hard for us to live a life of joy and completeness before you. And yet, in the cross of Jesus, you have offered us all of the healing for all of our wounds, which puts us on the road. And so we come and we embrace that healing and we trust you for our lives, not only eternally, but today. Thank you for being a God who cares so dearly and so deeply. In Jesus, amen.